healthcare delivery is still addicted to volume, you know, really badly addicted. And we have a bunch of leaders who talk a game that they don't actually play. I like to say that their audio and their video don't match. So their audio says, we're going to move towards value. We're a high value institution. And their actions say heads and beds are what makes our world go round. And, you know, the idea that we aren't going to change, yet we expect different results, is ridiculous, right? What's the future of health? Join doctors Jessica Shepard, Gotham Gulati, and myself, Jordan Schlain, as we embark on a conversational journey with prominent speakers, experts, and innovators from the stages of the annual health conference. The goal is to explore the ideas that put humanity at the front and center of our evolving healthcare system. After all, health is about people, isn't it? Hi, I'm Dr. G. On today's episode, we bring you an old acquaintance of mine, Dr. Mark Harrison, who's the founding partner of a new company called Hatco, and also partner at General Catalyst. We discuss the future of equitable healthcare by deploying new models of care delivery. Dr. Harrison is a global healthcare leader recognized for healthcare transformation and health equity advocacy. He's a pediatric critical care physician and is the former president and CEO of Intermountain Healthcare. Dr. Harrison has joined the venture capital firm General Catalyst to launch and lead a new business with the mission to deliver health and wellness collaboratively, compassionately, and courageously for all people. And so with that, let's begin the conversation. Welcome to an episode of Health Matters Podcast. I'm joined here today with Mark Harrison, who is vaguely familiar. We've crossed paths many years ago. We're just trying to figure this out, but I'm excited to have him here at the table talking about some of the things he's done in the past, but also some of the recent things that he's about to share with us. So welcome to the Health Matters Podcast, Mark. Thanks. It's an absolute pleasure. And I think it was Dubai. I think that's where we crossed paths. Yes, Dubai. Yes. A number of years ago. So that's definitely brings back some interesting memories. So, you know, probably the best place to start is to maybe share in your words what it is that interests you and who you are. Like, what, what, are you, what are you working on? Well, I'm a lifelong learner. I'm interested in just about everything. But what I really have focused my career on is understanding how to bring better health to all people. So I, you know, health equity has been part and parcel of things I've done, whether it's at the Cleveland Clinic, whether it's at Intermountain Healthcare, now at General Catalyst, launching a new company. I love to learn and I love to do work that has deep and lasting impact. And I've been very fortunate in the different phases of my life to be able to do that. Like you, I'm a physician. So I'm a pediatric intensivist, spent 20 years at the bedside, primarily was interested in pediatric cardiac critical care. And in the course of doing that work, I ended up being a, an entrepreneur. So I started an, a number of businesses for Cleveland Clinic, starting with a pediatric critical care transport business, then an adult transport business, and then ended up as the first chief medical operations officer for the clinic, responsible for globally integrating the system. Left that to head over to Abu Dhabi, and I was the founding 
CEO of Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. My family lived in the Middle East for about six and a half years. I brought our kids over with us. Two of them are graduates of the American Community School of Abu Dhabi, Ghost Sand Vipers. And from there, left to go to Intermountain Healthcare. And my wife and I had trained in pediatrics at Primary Children's, which is an Intermountain Hospital way back when. And it was really a pleasure to come back. And there had a fabulous and wild ride, both growing the system, but also integrating it and making sure that we drove the highest quality at all time. And I think we drove a great financial performance. And maybe most, most importantly, you know, we really worked on value-based care. You know, almost everybody talks about it. Almost nobody does it at scale. And it was really a privilege and a pleasure most of the time to go ahead and uh, take that system apart and put it back together in a fashion that actually was meant to deliver the public health outcomes that we knew that we could do, but we're falling a little bit short of. And now you've entered the seat of entrepreneurship. So going from entrepreneurship to leadership to entrepreneurship, and we'll get into that in a second. But what I'm really fascinated is you've clearly seen a journey that many people don't get to see in terms of being on the front lines as a, as a physician, seeing it from multiple roles in different types of systems. And I, you know, I think what's really interesting to me as, as part of my theme in terms of where I think a lot of the conversations need to go is, is this element of everything's changed, yet nothing's changed. We're really at an inflection point where I think there are so many changes and op- or opportunities that we have to change things that we've been talking about for the past two, three decades. You mentioned value-based care. You talked about your interest in equity. I'm curious, along your journey, in the roles that you've played, what have you seen not change that you think really is at an inflection point that needs to be changing now? So healthcare delivery is still addicted to volume you know, really badly addicted. And we have a bunch of leaders who talk a game that they don't actually play. I like to say that their audio and their video don't match. So their audio says, we're going to move towards value. We're a high value institution. And their actions say heads and beds are what makes our world go round. And, you know, the idea that we aren't going to change, yet we expect different results is ridiculous, right? I think the thing that... Was that re- the case over at, when you were at Intermountain? I mean, how did, how did you address that? No, actually, that Intermountain you- had... My predecessor, Charles Sorensen, had done a brilliant job of intellectually pivoting the organization towards value. The doctors wanted it. The structure wasn't there. And about 15 or 20% of the, of the revenue was associated with a full-risk model when I got there. And we reached a peak of about 50%. That declined then after we did a very large merger that increased the total revenue for the system. But we we really did have our audio and our video match. And we went from a median a system with median quality scores to a top decile quality. And it was based on a real super tight operating model that the leaders bought into. And I was very proud of them. And we delivered better public health for people. I think that the thing that really has changed in the in the world now is that Digital tools are ubiquitous, although they're often very poorly deployed, generally deployed as point solutions, which create more work and often deliver pretty marginal results. And the other thing that has happened is that our system is yet more fragile. Our system writ large is more fragile than it's ever been. Workforce shortages, huge problems associated with inflation, as I know you're well aware of. 
and the fact that the pandemic just really, really kicked us hard. And, you know, the systems are damaged and they have very, they're brittle. And we need now to go ahead and make holistic change in order to make them resilient again. It's really thrown salt on the wound and exposed a lot. It has. You know, it, it, the fallacy that we actually have a national health system was laid bare. That, the, you know, folks like Intermountain, who had a payer provider model that was well integrated, actually did really pretty well. We delivered great public health outcomes and we remained financially solvent. But we saw all the rest of the world just kind of come apart for the most part. And so talk to me a little bit about your transition out of Intermountain. What's that been like? Why did you do that? What are you working on now that... So, you know, in addition to the roles we discussed, you know, my, my favorite role is as a husband and father. The other really important role I have is as a patient. So I have had a really fairly difficult health journey myself. And right as the pandemic kicked off in March 2020, I was admitted to a bone marrow transplant unit at University of Pittsburgh to get CAR-T therapy because my blood cancer was completely out of control. I had failed conventional chemo. I had failed immunotherapy. I had failed a bone marrow transplant. And I got enrolled in a clinical trial for CAR-T. And I'm now three years in remission. Frankly, a miracle. Should have been dead a long time. Good stuff. I think the thing that led me to General Catalyst was this epiphanal moment towards the end of the pandemic when we had completed this giant merger for Intermountain and the revenue had grown from about $5 billion to about $15 billion. Quality skyrocketed from 50th percentile to 90th percentile. We had instituted value-based care at scale, hundreds of thousands of lives. And I was given the opportunity by Hemantanasia, who's the CEO of General Catalyst, brilliant, wonderful guy. And his chairman, Ken Chenault, who's an old friend who had run American Express. And the two of them gave me the opportunity to use my imagination and to go ahead and start a business that we thought could change the world in along the lines of population health and value, health equity. Haymont calls those things health assurance and radical collaboration. We just use different words for the same vision. And that's what Haymont and I have done. And, you know, we're, we're, we're actually talking here at the, at the health conference. By the time people listen to this, we'll have come out of stealth mode and a new company will be born that hopefully will change the world. So A, tell us what the new company is. So it's um, called HATCO, Health Assurance Transformation Company. Health Assurance Transformation Company, HATCO. Okay. So yep. our job is pretty straightforward. We want to take these brittle health systems and we want to help them become resilient and supple and move to the new world, which is no longer a, a legacy analog world. It's a clicks and mortar world. I think that mistake a lot of folks are making is that physical health care is going to, you know, in-person health care is going to largely go away. It's becoming irrelevant. Lots of people are trying to commoditize the health systems. You know who all those players are, whether it's big tech or big box or whatever. But the fact is that regular people trust those systems. They love them, in fact, in many instances. They respect them in almost all instances. And so they're not going away. But they also don't have the skills and in many cases the money to make the pivot and transformation to a new world. 
And so what we're meant to do at HATCO is to help make that happen. And there are a number of different arms we have to that. So underneath the rubric of our company, there'll be a number of different businesses resident there. So first and foremost, we will buy a health system, preferably a payer provider model. And it will become our proof of concept of what the world should look like. And we're not looking for like a decrepit, fallen apart system. We're looking for a system that is strong and healthy and has leadership and governance that is ready for the big change and is eager for it. So it's generally a, a combination of the traditional and, and the next gen. So most systems have, in the same way that buildings can have deferred maintenance, they have operational deferred maintenance. So there is, there's friction that just doesn't need to be there. There are systems that don't work pretty well. Especially given how rapidly technology changes over the right. course of time, right? So I think the first couple years of work really looks like a lot of work on supply chain, clinical operations. If it's a payer provider model, it's how do you actually take the friction out between the payer and the provider so you don't spend a lot of time and money doing things that don't actually add any real benefit to the patients. There's the, there's work around targeted marketing to grow a health plan around value-based lives, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, you know, in, in the old Clay Christensen model of you got to run the A strategy, which I just talked about, you're also running the B strategy, which is actually how do you go ahead and deploy the next gen stuff? So is it large language models? Is it AI powered clinical clinical tools? Are they administrative tools that allow fewer people to do work that is not very glorious or sexy, say accrediting physicians? And as you might imagine, Given the company that HATCO is embedded within, General Catalyst, we have access to you know over 150 digital companies and are carefully mapping out what the modules of work that need to be done are. And if we don't have them at General Catalyst, we'll find them, we'll invest in them, we'll start them. So this is really exciting to me because one of the, the things that I've talked about... By the way, this is radical. About, it, it absolutely is radical. Right? Yeah. And, and I think you know one of the areas that I study is paradigm shifts. And Mark Andreessen, 20-ish years ago, I think, talked about this notion of the world becoming unbundled as a result of the internet. And the way paradigm shifts work is you go three steps forward, two steps back, and there's this chaotic period that happens in the middle of the unbundling process. And I feel like what you're describing to me is the beginning of the rebundling process, that we've gone unbundling, created all of these point testing grounds and point solutions and experiments. Some things have worked, some things don't. We've learned from it. And now you're rebundling it into what that next gen system should be, but with the ability now to be flexible with whatever comes down the road versus the the, the rigidity that we used to have in our healthcare systems. That's really exciting to me. Yeah, and to add to that, there are two other components. The first is we recognize that the systems that we wish to work with, they maybe don't have the time or expertise to actually guide themselves through the process. So we're standing up advisory services that we plan on having be essentially free. The, the transformation itself should pay for the advisory services so that we can work with you if you're a health system and we can understand in depth what your strategic plan and operations look like and then sequence and identify the right solutions for you and then put them in place alongside of you and, and keep the cost down. 
because the value is actually created through the portfolio companies and and the growth that they do. It doesn't need to be a cash outlay on the part of of the system. And then finally, we've done something that I think is truly extraordinary. We've put together an ecosystem now of 20 health systems and one major payer who are our thought partners in what this should all look like. And then in many instances are serving as the sandboxes for our companies to begin to get to work and to understand how to serve better and better. And to give you a sense of scale, so 20 systems in four countries, they actually account for between 15 and 20% of American healthcare revenue. So big, impactful stuff. I think we cover 43 states at this point in time. So we've got an ecosystem of thought partners. We're going to own a health system that'll be a place where we can prove the concept. And then we have the advisory services to work, as well as the portfolio companies who will sign on with us to obey platform rules and rebundle, to use your word. And are you going to be documenting this whole this whole process Damn and utilizing straight. it as a blueprint for others to... Yeah. So we're actually working on a transformation playbook right now that takes us all into account. So the words are cheap, right? But we have every intention of making this like absolutely real. And the reason is... You know, if you take North American healthcare right now, it's it's a it's a disaster. Bad public health outcomes, shorter lifespans, burned out clinicians, lack of innovation, and we think that we can be a driving force to demonstrate what a better world looks like. Why the lag in adoption to value-based care? How much of it is policy systems driven? How much of it is behavioral driven? So if you think about it, from the policy and regulatory standpoint, federal government in the U.S. has done a great job. Medicare Advantage, Manage Medicaid, so that's state and federal, obviously. That's driving a lot of change. And, you know, as you well know, the innovation associated with that is nothing short of spectacular. I actually think it's fear, laziness, lack of (laughs) leadership, to tell you the truth. So most commercial, you know, the big commercial insurers have made huge promises to Wall Street. And I think they want to just keep making money the same way they've always made it as long as they possibly can and not put anything at risk. And um, I think most providers lack the courage to use their clinical relevancy to demand value from the payers. Um, I think it's really simple. It's very unfortunate, though. And I think if we can begin to demonstrate that A, it's possible, and B, that we can offer replicable solutions that will drive value, I think that um, we can begin to make a difference. So there's a number of factors that go into driving an effective value-based system of care. And, and, and one, of the, one of those factors requires the patient to be involved. And that's, that's a behavioral element that is oftentimes a difficult piece to, you know, because it's frustrating when your, your reimbursement is structured on a value-based system, but part of that structure is dependent on a patient complying with what is required of them. I mean, is it, it, do we implement carrot and stick types of methodologies? or So, you know, I'm going to gently disagree with you. Okay. Okay. And the reason I'm going to be gentle is you're, you have a very good point. But at least in my experience of doing this at scale, the most important thing is actually addressing their social determinants of health. So if social determinants are 50, 60% of a person's total health, if you can actually make sure they got a roof over their head, 
if you can make sure that they got food in their cupboards, if you make sure they have transportation to get to the doctor, you may need to provide them with digital access so they can access new tools. You can do a lot of this stuff even if they still eat Fritos in front of the television at times. From a disease management standpoint, but prevention standpoint, that's a whole different, that's a little bit of a different ballgame. I mean, unless we can figure out some sort of passive, passive ways to make it. I mean, I, I, I'm a firm believer that you're, you're literally a product of the environment that you keep. Exactly. And so if we change the environment, we can change their habits and change their behaviors, resulting behaviors as, as, as a part of that. Yeah. So I th- look, and you know this stuff really well, we've barely begun to scratch on gamification, incentivization, building of community. So I think there's, it's a yes and approach. So you're 100% right. And I think we need to go ahead and uh, think about people really holistically. The thing I'm most worried actually about is the isolation that people are, are facing. And there's all kinds of interesting ways that we can build both physical community and then community by extension through digital means too. So what's in your way? I mean, this is, this is a large mandate. I mean, there's a m- many things that can that can you know, be obstacles in terms of what you're trying to achieve. It's completely radical and transformational for sure. I actually feel like this is completely doable. And the, the reason I feel like that is if we identify the right system, they will already have product market fit to use our entrepreneurial language. They'll be, they'll be serving hundreds of thousands of people a year. And even if their financial performance is not like spectacular to start with, it's going to be adequate. And so it actually gives you time and space to go ahead and make the changes that are necessary to document, to iterate, to learn, etc. Is there a profile of a system that is more optimal for you? So I want to be purposefully vague for a second, but I will say that things I care about, I want to make sure that we take care of poor people and rich people. You know, if we were to go look for a system in the suburbs of one of the rich cities in the United States, no one would take us very seriously at all. Just like at Intermount, people didn't used to take us seriously around value-based care. They said, oh, everybody in Utah is healthy, which by the way, they're not. And there's a reason you're successful and it isn't, doesn't have to do with your model. So I want to make sure that we are in a population that a rational person would look at and say, well, if they can succeed with these folks, that, that this, there's really something here. And the other is I, I think that there's, the system should probably be in the one to three billion dollar range. So big enough to have relevance, small enough to be able to be nimble enough to make some change. And then the final thing is attractive about that size is that's the size system that most Americans get their health care in. And so the mega systems are a different animal altogether, right? The little tiny critical access hospitals, most of them have been hoovered up anyhow, that's a different animal also. But I, I think there's some magic in these systems that are big enough to have real impact, but small enough that they don't have the resources to, to do the things that the really big systems do. And then the final piece around that is, I think justifiably, some of these small systems have real community pride and a sense of place and an identity. And we know, and I've been part of this, I mean, when you do M&A activity, there are many good things that happen with, with the acquired entity, but one of the things that some people don't like is they lose their autonomy. And I think this will offer an alternative to a system to not lose its autonomy, to join us, and to, to really deeply serve the community that they're in and do it in a contemporary way, but still maintain that local flavor. 
I, I think that's a great vision. It actually reminds me, I'm, I'm actually reading this book called, I'm going to go to a slight tangent here, but it's, bear with me, it'll circle back to the same topic. It's called Unreasonable Hospitality. And it's written by the former general manager of Eleven Madison Park, which is a Danny Meyer restaurant in New York City, one of the top, it's a four-star restaurant. I think it's maybe a, I think it's probably a Michelin star restaurant now as well. But he talks about this tension between what he calls corporate systems and restaurant systems. And he goes, the restaurant systems want to deliver the top-notch service and the best experience that they can, metaphorically for, in this case, like the patient, right? On the front end, delivering care, the corporate system, wants to drive greatest efficiency out of the system. And it sounds like where you're trying to head is creating, you're heading with with Hatco, is really finding this proper balance between both of those. It is. And at the risk of being too rough, I don't think not-for-profit healthcare writ large has delivered its promise to the communities. I think we both know systems that carry that moniker of not-for-profit, but actually really don't act like it. And I think there is a sense of complacency in many of these systems that the for-profit world just doesn't have. So there's a method to my madness. I think that in general, the really big changes in society happen concurrently with economic changes and sustainable economic models. And I have a real desire to take not only the system we, we own, but the systems that we partner with and actually be able to demonstrate that you can do good and do well and that people should want to invest in these businesses that make their communities healthier. There's a virtuous cycle there and re- make a return for the investor. I, I, I see no reason why that's not possible given the waste, friction, redundancy that you and I both know is, is resident in healthcare. How do you think about some of the moving targets that we have ahead of us, things like what you're hearing here at the conference, the hospital at home, where it really challenges the notion of heads and beds type of model, or you mentioned large language model, generative AI, and the impact that's going to have. There's a lot of unknown unknowns in those categories, and I'm curious how you guys think about that. So I think about it in two ways. First of all, if you've got like a 2% EBITDA, you can't handle any <laughs> any shifts or fluctuations. You're you're just on the edge all the time. And um, that's not good. So I think a more robust system with some margin and some EBITDA innately changes the flexibility and resilience of a system so they can manage when things get tough. I think the second piece is, and this goes back to the population health or value-based care or health assurance model, if you have a capitated system, you know, having run a giant capitated system, damn, you've got like all the creativity and flexibility in the world if you have the first dollar. Do things in ambulatory surgery centers, do outpatient imaging, do hospital at home, do telehealth, do community health workers, pay for people to get their rides, do all that stuff. But Um, it also might squeeze the patient in ways that they shouldn't to some degree with a capitated model in terms of, well, we're going to once we go below this particular margin, we're not going to do any more further tests you know, um, associated with it, right? So there's a moral responsibility associated with it. To- yeah, you know that maybe I just was really blessed to work at a place where that was never an issue, ever. Well, um, you'd hope it wouldn't be. So but- I think that the, the benefit of the way, if you just take MA is set up, people have a lot of agency. They, 
you damn well better make them feel good or else they're going to find another plan. And in many markets, there are multiple plans that people can. So look, I, what you described would be a nightmare to me if, you know, people were really functioning in a gatekeeper faction, trying to keep costs down by, by denying services. I mean, if you're private equity owning a bunch of these systems, which is so first of all, we're not private equity. No, not, I'm not saying you guys. If, if somebody like like yeah. the, the world of private equity, you know, tends to think about, you they know. absolutely do. And um, you know, I think maybe the final piece of our model that we should talk about for a second is we're describing this as patient capital, not like a human patient, but like I'm willing to take my time capital, and we believe that we can find LPs who recognize that a healthcare can be a good investment. And B, that it actually changes over years to decades, not over quarters to years. And I think what you describe is private equity has its place, but it may not be in transforming health systems. The time frame may be too short, and some of the dynamics you describe could really come into play. Or changing corporate structures and driving operational efficiency. And then taking some of your blueprints and seeing, you know, once they spin them back out and and, and figuring out how Mm -hmm. to... That's amazing. That's oh, well, this is great. This is I, I think it's fascinating with what you're doing with Hatco and congratulations on that. And I'm excited to see where this goes. What else is on your mind lately that we haven't covered yet? Well, first, thanks for the good wishes. You know, I I have a, a son who is a he's a senior resident, he's a chief resident in OB right now. And he's about to do maternal fetal medicine. And he, he just got married and a bunch of his friends are doctors and nurses, as you might imagine. And I really loved being around them. They're in it for all the right reasons. They, none of them think they're going to become fabulously rich. Most of them just want to serve. And they want to practice good medicine and have nice lives and be good members of the community. And that purity of purpose and that recognition that taking care of another human being is maybe our highest and best calling remains as true as it ever has been. But the way the system is configured at this moment, it makes it really hard to do that. And I really hope HACO is going to be part of the impetus for that change so that that next generation gets to serve like you and I have served. Well said. And there's, you know, it's always interesting to see, you talked about your personal experience and going through the system with your health challenges. It's much more, the incentive is much greater you having sat on both sides of the state table to understand how to make that proper system work. And, and, and for your, for your son, you said he was in, in medical school or a, a, He's a resident, resident. Mm-hmm. you know, to give him the system that he deserves. And I, I hope my children enter the system. I mean, a lot of people ask me, why did I, you know, choose to leave medicine? I think it's our responsibility to create that future system. And I would absolutely recommend them go, go into the healthcare system because I think it's going to be really exciting, especially if they got visionaries like you drafting up the system the way uh, you imagine it. So thank you. Thanks for listening. If you're still there, I'm hoping it's because you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. We will be releasing new episodes regularly. And to stay on top of the hottest topics, simply subscribe to Health Matters. That's H-L-T-H Matters on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review. See you next time.